Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today is the day, or more precisely, yesterday was the day, but I wanted to get the chance to organize some of my own thoughts and some of the thoughts of other folks that are reporting on one of the biggest technology lawsuits in a very long time. And of course, I'm talking about Epic versus Apple, which may finish on virtual legality with 50 plus videos in its playlist. If you want additional background information on how all of this came to be with respect to Epic versus Apple, as well as versus Google, which will probably come to fruition at some point after this case, please do check out that playlist as we are going to be skipping ahead to the actual testimony and litigation strategies of both of these technological behemoths. Now, I'm not going to be able to follow the court case in its entirety every day. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, I do have a legal practice to run clients to help manage their own legal issues, and I can't sit on a phone call and listen to another court case, even though this is as important as it is. So I am going to be relying on reporters such as folks at GameSpot and at The Verge and some really good Twitter follows that are going over in detail a lot of this testimony and that's going to make it available for me to talk to you all about it. So I'm highly recommending that I'm going to link these articles in the description of this video. The GameSpot one's going to be updating. I've got a couple of Verge articles to show you and I've got some Twitter follows to show you that you check those out on a live basis because I'm only going to be able to do these videos every once in a while and hopefully it's going to cover most if not all of the litigation as it happens, but if you want those kinds of live updates, I highly recommend seeking out these other sources. With that all being said, here at 6 p.m. on May 4th, we have roughly two days of this litigation to look at, so let's dive in. Here at GameSpot, they are updating major story items that are talking about what's happening kind of holistically in the court case. Starting yesterday, one of the things they noted, which I thought was really interesting, was that Epic Games' trial started with the audience screaming free Fortnite. Now, in the age of corona, with Zoom trials, here phone calls with actual people attending in person, you have all these technological issues at the court level. A lot of the times, you have people unable to mute the line properly, unable to control who is talking and when, and it seems to be that that was the case with this particular uh, trial yesterday. And the Free Fortnite Kids, which of course was a movement fomented, really organized and arranged by plaintiff Epic Games, got on the line and started yelling on the, the court phone call. And while this isn't likely to upend any particular legal decision one way or the other, I did note at the time, it's not the way you want to start if you're on the Epic side. The judge has already said in her orders regarding the motions for temporary restraining order and preliminary injunction that she felt that Free Fortnite was a bit of a stage show, a bit of smoke and mirrors that wasn't necessary from the Epic side. So having the actual court case start with this kind of activity doesn't look great, but it's probably not going to change the overall legal decision at the end of the day. We also had a few disclosures made that the Epic company had made $9 billion. I almost said the Epic Game Store. That's most definitely not the case, but that Epic had made $9 billion over the course of 2018 and 2019. The financial revelations didn't stop there, as GameSpot reports, as we also learned how much Epic paid out to various platform partners between January 2017 and October 2020. In that time, it paid approximately $237 million to Apple, $246 million to Microsoft, and $451 million to Sony, 
This was presented by Apple as evidence that iOS is not the biggest platform for Fortnite, which I don't think anybody thought was the case. Even Epic had admitted that in the motions that we had looked at last fall. But it's still an interesting piece of evidence, right? You've got Epic coming out here and saying Apple being able to enforce these platform fees is a monopoly provider of something. They want to say it's a monopoly provider of iOS app access, which it is, of course, the case. But whether or not that is a sufficient legal definition for a market is one of the major questions in this lawsuit. If it is not, if that is not the relevant market, if the relevant market is, say, video games, then this kind of number is shown to the court to say, look, we don't control any of this. Fortnite doesn't even make that much money on Apple compared to the other two major consoles. Why are we here in court, Your Honor? And that might well be effective depending on how the market winds up being defined. As we've said as part of this series, that is where one of the initial major crux points, decision points, is in this particular case. Epic's attempts to secure Fortnite PlayStation Crossplay were revealed in emails with Sony. We went over this in a video here in Virtual Legality yesterday, so we're not going to dive into it in more substance, except to note that Tim Sweeney in his testimony on the first day stated that Sony was the only platform to ask for this kind of special revenue share in respect of cross-play capability, and that Epic had in fact paid money to Sony under terms like the ones shown to the court uh, as part of their business progress in the various years since cross-play has been enabled on the Sony platforms, which is interesting. The one thing I would note there is you would expect that really only the market leader in terms of base, user base, would put forward terms like Sony did as we discussed in that video. Because it was based on this overabundance of play on one platform versus revenue generated in the aggregate, you would expect that terms like that would be offered only by the PlayStation 4s of the world and not by the Xboxes or Nintendos. When another party has that kind of user base majority, we might see similar negotiations. I'm not prepared to say Sony is unique in looking at terms like that when we just don't have the comparison to Microsoft or Nintendo really sitting in that catbird seat to try to extract that value that they think they're generating for Epic. You don't have to like it. I don't like it as a gamer. I love to see crossplay. I don't really like to see monetary barriers in the middle of it. But from a business perspective, I can understand it. And if you want more of my conversation on that point, you can check out the video from yesterday. We also saw some kind of unrelated things, such as Fortnite skins being leaked, like Samus, Naruto, The Rock, and more. And then we start to get into today's issues. That's where we're going to leave GameSpot for this particular video, but we are going to look at certain items from The Verge. The first, which I recommend everyone to check out, is the slide decks from the opening statements from both Apple and Epic in this court case. Now, I was actually able to listen to about 15 minutes of Epics. I wound up tweeting out that they had a very difficult kind of case to make, that even in their opening statements, as I've mentioned in virtual legality, it winds up sounding like Apple has this great asset. They've built it up. They've provided value, which Epic basically admits in part. And now they want access to that asset for less than Apple wants to extract as an access price. And they're coming very hard, obviously, in a federal litigation like this one, but it's a tough case to make historically under antitrust laws, where for the most part in the United States, we've said if you make hardware, you can control what that hardware is, what you contract out for, your operating system controlling that hardware. And if you're asking for 30%, Epic can take it or leave it. It's a voluntary transaction. And they have, of course, been in contract with Apple for some time. But these slides kind of show where both parties are at. Epic focuses 
on Apple trying to lure in developers with certain sneaky things like free APIs and other avenues, making their business transactions seem very simple so that they have this stickiness and lock-in. You see here on the page I've highlighted that they have shown emails to Tim Cook talking about being hooked on the ecosystem, who leaves Apple products once they've bought apps, music, and movies. And that's interesting, right? Because in antitrust law, one of the things that can get you in trouble is using market power to affect something where there's a high level of friction in users, that there's this stickiness, that people don't like to leave your brand even if you start ratcheting up things like fees, making their product worse and worse and worse. One of the issues that Epic has in this case that we've talked about in virtual legality is that Apple didn't change its in-app payment processing concept, didn't change its 30% cut going into the fall of 2020. So Epic just all of a sudden decides that this is too much, but under the Sherman Antitrust Act, under antitrust law in the United States in general, you have to show even a monopolist, even if Apple is shown to have a monopoly power in iOS access, as using that monopoly power illegally. And since they didn't change anything from the time when they had zero apps or 500 apps on their little chart to the time where they have all these apps and billion users and whatnot, it's a difficult case to make. Is it impossible? No, nothing under antitrust law or the Sherman Antitrust Act is impossible, but it continues to be difficult to make. This is highlighted with some of the stuff that Apple wound up showing in their own opening statements, such as this chart that shows that virtually everybody was charging 30% or higher when Apple joined the marketplace with their app store. So that this, whatever you want to call it in their contracts, is not monopolistic behavior. They came in right at the market price. They've stayed there the whole time. And what Epic has done is tried to take advantage of definitions in technology to win a lower price for their product offering. That's Apple's argument. They say Epic is wrong on the relevant market. Epic cannot show that anti-competitive conduct. We didn't change anything. They can't show anti-competitive effects because we can't see consumer prices changing. And the Epic Game Store actually stands a little bit against that when we see prices in both stores at the same level, even with a different cut going to the publisher or going to the platform holder. Apple can show pro-competitive justifications for why it does what it does. That's the security argument. And Epic cannot prove a tie, illegal tying between the App Store access and the in-app payment processing product, where Epic wants to say it's an illegal tie. We want access to the store so you make us use the payment processor. Apple says, we've never sold the payment processor. It's never been offered separately. We've never marketed the payment processor. It's a component of the App Store. It's not a tied separate product. And so if you can't prove illegal tying, if you can't show anti-competitive effects, if we have reasons for doing what we have done, then you're in trouble. And if they win, Epic is wrong on a relevant market. You don't even have to get to the rest of this stuff. So you've got two big companies with obviously very different theories of the case. And yesterday, after those opening statements, you had some big testimony from CEO Tim Sweeney at Epic, as reported on by The Verge, Addy Robertson, who we're also going to look at, is reporting on day two as the second half of this video. Let's take a look at what he said in this article, and I hope I got that right. I apologize if I didn't. Epic Games launched its courtroom war against Apple in an extremely on-brand way with CEO Tim Sweeney describing the metaverse. It's a real-time, computer-powered 3D entertainment and social medium in which real people would go into a 3D simulation together and have experiences of all sorts. The metaverse is Sweeney's chosen metaphor for Fortnite, the battle royale game that Apple banned from its iOS app store last year. 
Epic put Sweeney on the stand for hours of exhaustively detailed questions about, among other things, Epic's Unreal Engine, gaming consoles, the App Store, and what players do on Fortnite's Party Island. While Sweeney has referred to Epic's fight with Apple as a fireworks show, today's session wasn't quite as dramatic as that suggests. Sweeney is a generally soft-spoken man who delivered testimony through a barely audible microphone setup after a long troubleshooting period that involved random teenagers yelling free Fortnite into accidentally unmuted conference lines. Technology, ladies and gentlemen, courts are maybe at the bottom of the line. Epic's legal team was responsible for asking questions that set up Sweeney's statements, resulting in queries both extremely tailored, how would you define the metaverse, and comically general. Are you familiar with something called a console? Now, let's take a step back here because these questions obviously do sound ridiculous. As a matter of fact, both of these parties had much more sophisticated arguments in the fall when talking about a temporary restraining order or a preliminary injunction. So why does this happen now? Once the litigation has started, well, you have to establish a court record. You have to establish definitionally exactly what it is you're talking about on the Epic side and on the Apple side. And when the judge asks a question, because this is a bench trial, for her purposes to help clarify what it is you're talking about. So you do get these questions. What is a smartphone? What is the metaverse? What is a console? Do you know what a PlayStation 5 is? And these kinds of things, because you have to establish that court record to create the evidentiary foundation for what it is you're actually going to be arguing about. Sounds silly, takes a lot of time. I totally recognize that. But you do want to do that to make sure that there isn't any ambiguity, a lack of clarity for when you're actually talking about the serious items that you want the case to be about. Developers found themselves caught in a trap of Apple's making, Epic argued in its opening statement, and the most prevalent flower in the walled garden was the Venus flytrap. In fact, if we go back to these slides, you can actually see in Epic slides, they're trying to be a little bit creative with their PowerPoint here. They uh, actually add bricks to this wall of the walled garden when you look at everything that they're adding. And when they use these emails where Apple talks about walling in their garden and having a plan to get people to stay in that garden. Of course, it's not illegal in America to incentivize customers to stay. In fact, if you go to any business school in the country, you'll see that actually acquiring users is much more expensive than retaining them. And part of that is to have a certain stickiness, a certain amount of brand loyalty. But it can, of course, go too far. And that's what Epic is arguing here. Apple countered by calling Epic suit a fundamental assault on Apple's secure and integrated ecosystem. In cross-examination, Apple's attorney pushed Sweeney to confirm that Epic spent nearly a decade playing by Apple's rules before launching an operation codenamed Project Liberty to flout them. Both sides promoted high-minded ideals and appeared shocked that their opponent was trying to make money. I don't know if that's in fact the case, but they might have appeared that way in their testimony and or opening statements. But certainly, these are two very different views of the world. Whether or not Apple should be allowed to build what it has built and to control access to that for developers is the fundamental question here at the heart of the case. To start out with, from a legal perspective, the question is, can Apple even have a monopoly in access to its own hardware and operating system that it built? That will be an interesting question for the court to answer and might well be the question that an appeals court, if not the Supreme Court, is actually called upon to answer depending on how things go from here. Epic mostly stuck to discussing its most moderate request that Apple let developers process in-app purchases through their own systems, bypassing Apple's fee. Apple highlighted the most extreme ask, that Apple let iPhone owners sideload third-party app stores like the Epic Game Store. These are separate demands, so Judge Rogers could end up finding both parties' arguments here compelling. And I'm going to talk about this 
for a little bit. I don't think that that's a very likely outcome here. First, we need to talk about what's being asked. Epic is not asking for damages. They aren't asking for money. They don't have to ascertain exactly what they have lost with Apple enforcing their contract as it stands today. Instead, what Epic is asking for is an injunction, equitable relief that forces Apple to change its contract, to not enforce certain of its terms. Most specifically, the term that says you can't have another app store put on our phone And secondarily, the term that says you have to use our in-app payment processor to to sell things through apps that are available on our app store. Fundamentally, those are the same question and have the same result. If Apple were to lose either of these, Apple's business model with respect to applications on their iPhone and potentially their hardware sales, depending on how much profits they would lose, are put at risk. You might be fine with that. The court might be fine with that. But there is no distinction between you don't have to use our payment processor. No money has to come through us because so many games are free to play already on the Apple ecosystem and we can sideload an app store. I don't think they are very likely to win the app store argument, but if they did, it has the same effect. All the money goes to Epic and any other developer that wants to run an app store, just like all the money goes to any developer that wants to use their own in-app payment processing service. Apple is going to be existentially concerned about either, and unless the court finds that there is illegal monopoly use or restraint of trade at the Sherman Antitrust level, it's hard to see slicing the onion so that you give one win to one party and one win to the other. I think if you're going to look at a kind of Solomonic approach to a decision like this one, you're more likely to see something like the judge offering to lower the rate of the iPhone and iOS cut. That has its own dangers. I don't think that's particularly likely either, but I think it's more likely than trying to give one to Epic and one to Apple on this particular score. Apple's attorney didn't finish cross-examining Sweeney on Monday, but he hammered on Epic's willingness to deal with gaming companies like Sony, who locked down their consoles in ways that Apple compares to the iPhone. Sony, for instance, requires Epic to pay if a user plays Fortnite mostly on PlayStation, but spends lots of money on another platform like PC. This was the revelation from yesterday, and we talked about it at length. But it's important to note here, because a lot of people have come into my comments, a lot of people have commented on articles like this one or on Twitter, and said phones are fundamentally different from gaming consoles. In fact, Epic believes that. That's the argument that they have gone out there with. As we've highlighted in virtual legality, under the law, it is not terribly obvious how that distinction might be drawn under the legal framework that Epic is arguing here, which at a fundamental level is if you create a piece of hardware, your operating system is monopolistic if you control access to that operating system. And when questioned, Tim Sweeney has said, hey, yes, that means it was monopolistic right when they started, when they only had 500 apps on the system. And there's no easy way to distinguish that between an iPhone and an Xbox or a PlayStation, who, of course, creates their own hardware, creates their own operating system, only allows access to an app store and what have you. We see as part of this testimony, and I think we'll see it in today's testimony as we go over those highlights as well, that Epic's primary mode of distinction here is that the business model is different. That instead of the phone model, which tries to get all of its upfront costs upfront and get paid a huge amount of money for the phone and then apps are just icing on the cake, the Sony PlayStation 5 and the Xbox Series X or Series S is subsidized by the company. That they don't make a lot of money, if any money, on the hardware itself and only make money through the applications on their store. And Epic would have you say, well, that's a distinction. But the law doesn't look at your business model. If Apple could only sell its phone subsidized. That doesn't change anything under the law from Apple being able to sell its phone at a premium. 
That's good marketing. That's brand goodwill, whatever it might be. That doesn't distinguish between what Epic is asking the court to do here, which is to say that if you control your hardware access, you shouldn't be allowed to do so in X reason or Y way. That doesn't change for an Xbox or a PlayStation. And most importantly, and I've highlighted this in virtual legality before, it's important to note that even if Epic says, we don't want to go that direction, we think they're different, we think that we can get this ruling here without affecting that landscape. One, the judge has already indicated that she's not quite so sure about that proposition. And two, Epic doesn't control the entire field of litigation after this court case is over. Let's assume nobody appeals. You actually get a definitive document at the end of this litigation that says Epic wins and a iPhone can't have these specific contract provisions. Epic doesn't want to sue Sony, who has invested $500 million in the company, doesn't want to sue Microsoft, who has helped them throughout this entire process. But maybe third-party developer X does, or Y, or a different publisher, or someone else affiliated with a different technology industry says, hey, let's use Epic versus Apple and say, if you have an operating system that controls access, well, then you're a monopolist by law under the Sherman Antitrust Act. And certainly an entire forest of litigation would develop from an epic win on this theory. Maybe that's okay with you. I can't say uh, whether or not it would be a good thing or a bad thing, but it's important to note that regardless of what Epic says here about what they want to do against consoles in the future, those console lawsuits would come with an epic win on the theories that they describe. On the other side, Epic can point to an intuitive sense that the iPhone platform is bigger and more all-encompassing than the Xbox or PlayStation. But Sweeney and its attorneys have drawn a much finer distinction involving its business model, saying that console man makers typically sell their hardware at a loss, so they have an incentive to treat developers better. Judge Rogers actively questioned that distinction during today's testimony. Apple did have to do something to the iPhone itself in terms of the technology of the iPhone in order for it to be sophisticated enough to play your software. How is that any different than consoles? Not so much about the payment piece, but about the development of the technology that allows your product to be played. The law is pretty business model agnostic. And when you talk about what's an antitrust violation, the fact that you can sell your phone at a premium versus having to subsidize it probably doesn't make the difference that Epic wants it to for purposes of the court case itself, which means Epic could be right. But if Epic is right and the court case decides that Epic is right on this theory of the case, well, then you might have drastic implications for entire other technology sectors. And that's how The Verge summarizes Tim Sweeney's testimony from the first day. And I'm very appreciative for the journalists like Addie Robertson who are out there doing this good work. And I want to give you this particular Twitter thread to follow because they have been putting out great live tweets summarizing these arguments as they happen. Or as we're going to talk about today, day two of live tweeting the Apple Epic trial starts in 15 minutes, expecting more cross-examination of Epic CEO Tim Sweeney, plus witnesses from NVIDIA and Xbox, and God willing, better audio. Don't think God gave the better audio on this particular day. Coverage of yesterday below, that's the article we just read, and let's take a look at this. Obviously, it's a very long thread, highly recommend checking it out for yourself. I have highlighted maybe a dozen of my most interesting facts as retweeted here uh, in this particular Twitter thread to go over, but there are always going to be things that I'm not going to cover in this thread alone. And of course, that this particular Twitter user didn't cover from the overall hours and hours of litigation. So it's very difficult to summarize all of this. Highly recommend using multiple sources, including virtual legality, to try to get a holistic feel for what's happening here in this very, very important case. Court has just come into session. There's some sensitivity 
Over info from that was supposed to be sealed, but was accidentally released online yesterday. Judge says there's no point in resealing the documents if they've leaked. So apparently what happened, particularly with the cross-play revenue share documentation that we looked at yesterday, was that the court had intended to seal the, that particular evidence that actually talked about numbers, right? We looked at 85% and 15% and ratios and things like that. Ordinarily, for a third party that isn't involved directly in the, in the litigation, many courts will go and redact that information or otherwise seal the document entirely in order to protect the trade secrets and valuable documentation of these third parties. It wasn't entirely clear to me yesterday why these certain things were being put up in the Epic versus Apple evidence room and were being found by people like Tom Warren at The Verge, uh, but they were certainly worthy of public consideration and review and looking at it in the video that we did in virtual legality. And unfortunately, as it turns out, those weren't intended to be released at all. But as the court says here, that horse has left the barn. It's very difficult to put it back in, especially in a litigation that is as popular and as publicized as this one. So even though there are requests for additional redactions and seals, I don't know whether the court will actually honor those because the information is already out there and certainly an auspicious start to the day. Now we get into Tim Sweeney's testimony. The lawyer is saying that only 5% of users were spending money on the App Store. Is accusing Epic, this is the cross-examination by Apple of Tim Sweeney, of punishing all the other consumers by taking a stand over in-app purchasing and refusing to come back to the App Store. Now, this isn't of specific pertinence to the legal question of whether or not Apple is a monopolist acting illegally to enforce contract terms that it shouldn't be allowed to enforce. One of the things that Apple tried to do today and tried to do yesterday to some extent is to impugn Tim Sweeney. As we talked about in virtual legality for a lot of this series, over 30 episodes, Mr. Sweeney has in some cases been his own worst enemy by being so prolific on Twitter and going out with self-righteous statements for setting up Project Liberty, this entire litigation framework, with free Fortnite, with loot boxes going out to various influencers across the internet, logoed up, video ready to go to disparage Apple, and really hasn't been a great plaintiff for this purpose. One of the things that the judge said in the motion stage was epic, you didn't need to breach your contracts to bring this case. If Apple is acting illegally, you can still operate under the contract, collect your money, Apple can collect its money. We can even set up an escrow where all that money goes to a third party and then we divvy it up for whoever actually won the court case and nobody is harmed. What do you say, Epic? And then Epic self-righteously says, absolutely not. We're not going to abide by these horrific terms that we were fine with for 10 years or however long. Uh, and we are instead going to fight for a free Fortnite and free development for all. So Apple comes in here and says, well, look, you say only 5% of your users were even spending money on Fortnite on iOS. Aren't you punishing 95% of your users? And as a side note, aren't some of those users coming into things like this court case and yelling on the phone lines because of your actions? Epic, aren't you a bad actor? Don't you have unclean hands here? Which Apple and their lawyers already know that the judge thinks in the back of her mind. So that's kind of the direction that this particular line of questioning goes. I don't think it's terribly useful long run because I don't think a judge is going to decide the legal question based solely on these kinds of things. If Apple is acting in the wrong, Epic is free to do whatever it wants. But certainly wielding its audience when 95% of them don't actually pay money is worthy of note. And I don't deny the Apple lawyers doing it. From March 2018 to August 2020, Apple supported Fortnite's business model, says the lawyer, and Apple supported Epic's cross-platform play on iOS and non-iOS devices, as well as cross-wallet policies 
where you can buy in-app purchases elsewhere. When a player did that, Apple would not receive any commission, and yet those V-Bucks would be spent by the player on the iOS device, says lawyer. Apple permitted cross-play and cross-wallet transactions. Sweeney agrees, and not all platforms did. Which brings us back to this cross-play point. Sweeney confirms that there were significant negotiations throughout 2018 between Epic and Sony over cross-play. So what are the lawyers trying to establish here? They're trying to establish that Epic has plucked out Apple as an unwarranted enemy when it is currently engaged with console manufacturers that are asking for as much, if not more, as in the case with Sony, than Apple, and what is Epic doing? Now, Epic and Tim Sweeney's entire argument is that phones and the mobile ecosystem and iOS in particular for this litigation is distinct from the console space. So all of this kind of collapses back in on the question of whether or not the judge believes Epic or believes Apple here. If consoles are distinct from the phone space for purposes of Fortnite and games, Epic is going to have a much stronger case and a much higher likelihood of at least getting that relevant market question answered in its favor versus Apple trying to say, look, you sell Fortnite on all these places. Apple has been nicer to you than the consoles, allows crossplay, allows cross wallet, does all these things. And yet you still favor Sony. Sony invests in you. You pay Sony a cut of a difference in revenue and you're coming after us. And that's an interesting avenue in and of itself. Lawyers citing that in 2012, Sweeney said there were too many platforms for computing and the field would sort itself out with a platform war. So what's the purpose of this kind of line of argument? You've got Sweeney out in 2012, and you can actually see a slide for this if you go check out that Verge article with the opening statement slides, saying things like, we've got all these platforms. These platforms are going to be involved in a platform war. Things like developers are ultimately going to win the day. Judge asks about a specific quote where Sweeney says a great game will succeed wherever it's sold and developers have the real power in the industry. And then Sweeney says he means on PC. Does that mean that the opposite is true in other contexts for games? Judge asks, on iOS, developers can't go anywhere but the iOS store, Sweeney says, whereas on PC, you've got a choice of app stores. And of course... That is, again, the crux of their case, but Apple is again trying to attack Mr. Sweeney here by saying, you've said for years, even on our stage, about the power of development and the power of actually having the product, the video game, rather than simply being the distribution platform. And the judge is rightfully asking the question, why did you say that? And he says, well, he only meant for PCs. That seems to stretch credulity a little bit because back in 2012, I doubt very much that Mr. Sweeney was considering this at a high level, certainly not in a litigation context. Apple is back on the sinister implications of Project Liberty, Epic's plan to sneakily add in-app purchases to the App Store. Epic has never really denied that it was sneaky. Now, that's untrue. If you go back to the motion documents, the judge castigates Epic for doing something behind the scenes. Epic tries valiantly to say that their hot fix was used in a number of different pieces of software, that it wasn't that sneaky, and that Epic should not be so castigated for bad acts, that the real bad actor here is Apple, and that basically everything Epic did was justified because Apple, the evil empire, was doing things that were against the law. Certainly, if Epic is right there, and reasonable minds can differ on who is the winning party in a lawsuit like this one, if Epic is right there, there is a certain justification to saying I can do certain things against other parties that are violating the law. 
Unfortunately, this is such a gray area, as every antitrust and Sherman Antitrust Act litigation is, that it's very difficult to side with Epic, which is why you get those kinds of arguments from the judge that says, well, let the courts sort it out. We don't much care for self-help. If Apple said you can't do this, then you're in breach of contract and let's not pretend that you weren't. And let's move forward with deciding whether that contract itself should be deemed void on this particular front. Now, Apple in their opening statements does highlight Project Liberty. And this was an interesting set of documents. If you haven't dived in and looked at the Project Liberty concept, Epic was planning this for a long time. And that was obvious from the very start. One of my earliest videos in this playlist was, it's a trap when they filed the federal lawsuit on the same day that all of this happened with the mega drop, because you can't set up a federal lawsuit like that without really months of planning, nor would you step into one with a behemoth like Apple without knowing what you were getting into. One of the problems I've had with Tim Sweeney and with Epic's announcements and pronouncements on this particular litigation is their righteousness. And the Project Liberty documents really put paid to that lie, where you can actually see references to things like significant planning has gone into Project Liberty, Epic's war against mobile platform fees. Growth is predicated on user-generated content. Stronger creator revenue share from mobile mobile platform fees will help us. And most importantly, this actually isn't highlighted here by Apple. I don't know if it's highlighted in the next page. It's not. Solve this problem before augmented reality takes off and that rate is set at 30%. So Epic has designs on a grand metaverse. The Verge article actually shortens it a little bit too much, in my opinion. It's not about Fortnite Battle Royale. Epic keeps referencing their purchases of things like Fall Guys and Fortnite and integrating more and more licenses and intellectual property into this notion of a metaverse because they want to create a social situation where you will always come there and buy a cosmetic or buy anything else. And yes, Epic will get its cut because businesses need to get paid for the services that they provide, even if Epic disagrees on what the actual percentage of that should be even they would acknowledge that with respect to Apple. So Epic wants to create this metaverse. And part of that apparently is going to be a big push into augmented reality. And they want to make sure before they do that big push that they can get this 30% either taken away or knocked significantly down. And Project Liberty, although righteously named, is their design to do that, as was obvious from really the start. Epic has always been in position to make potentially billions of dollars if they can get out of Apple's 30% cut or reduce it significantly or run their own store on mobile or other ecosystems. And Epic was always, always focused on making that money. I have no problem with that. That is what businesses are supposed to do if they think there was a weakness here and money to go get. I do not have an issue. Where I have an issue is with framing this crusade as some kind of self-righteous, if not quixotic endeavor to help developers against the megalith of Apple. It was never that. It's designed to help Epic. That's what you use your money on and pay those lawyers for. And that has always been the case. And Apple is right to point it out. Nothing wrong with that. This doesn't win the case for Apple. But Epic has, of course, throughout this entire process, been acting in its own best interests. Epic had certain plans for August that will provide an extraordinary opportunity to highlight the value proposition of consoles and PCs in contrast to mobile platforms and to onboard new console users. And you can see that's in quotes. Why? Because that was in a message that Tim Sweeney wrote to Phil Spencer before the mega drop and lawsuit and Project Liberty, before all of these plans came to fruition. And he was trying to get Microsoft on board and saying it would highlight the value of consoles and PCs in contrast to mobile platforms. 
which is really, really interesting when you consider that consoles have not been a part of this fight, charge 30%. In the case of Sony now, we know charge more than that 30% for games that feature crossplay like Fortnite. And Tim Sweeney is still going out there and saying that what he is doing right now is going to highlight the value proposition of things like the Xbox. Why was he saying that? Well, Tom Warren, again, diving into the evidence bag, and we are very thankful for the journalists that do this every day. Here's an email from Xbox chief Phil Spencer to Tim Sweeney ahead of Fortnite on iOS and Android. Spencer says main issue is cross purchases and is solvable. Xbox didn't want Fortnite on Xbox items to be non-competitively priced relative to other cross purchase platforms. That is very, very interesting. So Phil Spencer is a little bit more amenable to Tim Sweeney approaching him than Sony was on this whole cross-play, cross-purchase, cross-progression kind of concept for Epic and for Fortnite, but he's concerned about price differentiation, right? Sony, as we saw, had a concern that most of the user base was on PlayStation, and even if the prices were the same, a number of folks might buy it on a different platform. Sony wouldn't get its cut, and Sony wanted its cut, and you can disagree with that, but Sony wanted its cut. Here, we see Xbox a little concerned about the other way. Okay, we're going to allow cross-play, we're going to allow cross-progress, we're going to allow cross-wallets, whatever it is that we're going to allow, but we're worried that you're going to offer discounts through your website directly. We're worried that you're going to offer discounts on PlayStation, and people are going to go over there and then buy something and play it back over here on Xbox. Everybody's worried about their own particular hardware ecosystem, and that's what these businesses should do. But what's really interesting about that, as I tweeted out, was that The mega drop giving rise to all of this reduced prices on consoles along with the iOS direct payment maneuver that led to this litigation, despite there being no indications that the consoles weren't still taking their cut. If you go back to that auspicious fall 2020 day, the very first thing that Epic announced was that any V-Bucks or real money offers you purchase on PlayStation 4, Xbox One, Nintendo Switch, PC, and Mac are discounted by 20%, and we're going to go around the horn on Apple. We're not going to discount Apple. This is all about giving you a direct payment option on this ecosystem. But since Xbox was very concerned about different payment concepts, since PlayStation was already very concerned about getting somehow lost by the virtue of the cross-play and of itself, what Epic did, and this was apparent on the day, was really create a kind of smoke and mirrors situation. Or as I tweeted out, the argument of iOS pricing would be less but for their IAP cut that we could offer things for less on the iOS ecosystem if we didn't have to pay their 30% is self-evidently smoke and mirrors if they've otherwise simply elected to take less money from other hardware platforms like the Xbox, as Phil Spencer was requiring in that email in 2018, that still take their own cut. Plus, of course, now that we know, even more in the case of Sony for a potential cross-play revenue share. So what Epic does here is they highlight Apple. They say Apple is very bad. And if Apple didn't take its 30%, we could offer lower prices to people, but they're already offering lower prices to people on situations through other hardware that seem identical to what would be the distribution of Fortnite through the Apple App Store. You go on Xbox, it's free to play. It doesn't even have a live block anymore. And if you pay money to them, Epic gets its 70%. Microsoft gets its 30%. And yet... Everything is priced lower on Xbox and PlayStation primarily to make Apple look bad. You break this down by math and you say, well, that isn't a great thing if you're trying to make this argument from the Epic side because as an antitrust action, you have to show that consumers are harmed 
by Apple's action. And mostly it looks like Epic is harming consumers. If it's otherwise willing to give you a thousand V-Bucks for $8 on the other platforms, but not on Apple because reasons. Interesting. Sweeney's now talking about how Epic has negotiated with Microsoft holistically, but Epic has never negotiated a different commission structure with the console makers, to my knowledge. That would include revenue share, I believe. Tim Sweeney has said that only PlayStation and Sony had asked for that. But also it's worth noting that Sweeney had asked Apple to allow direct payment, had asked Apple to make a side letter to do something different with them, as we've talked about as part of this series, and doesn't appear to have approached Sony or Microsoft in a similar situation. Obviously, Sony and they had worked out some kind of revenue share, which is slightly different, but neither one of those consoles had been asked to lower their cut from Epic for this purpose. And of course, their business model, Sony's and Microsoft's and Nintendo's that Epic is using to justify the distinction here, doesn't actually matter from Epic's point of view. There is no reason to care about whether the other party is subsidizing their hardware or do these other things when you're talking about your own company. If you pay 30% on $8, you're making less money than if you pay 30% on $10. And that's just the way it goes. But Epic's trying to make a point here. And I'm not so sure that making that point isn't ultimately going to blow up in their face, depending on what the judge thinks of all this. We're back. Sweeney delving into the difference between a console and a general purpose device. A user doesn't expect the ability to plug in a keyboard or other similar flexibility on a console, says Sweeney. And I doubt that they do expect it, although I believe most of these consoles, if not all of them, support that. Maybe not the Switch. Epic's lawyers are arguing with the judge over whether they're drawing a meaningful distinction between computers slash consoles via a somewhat fine-grained hypothetical about whether you could check your bank balance at the doctor's office if you loaded a banking app onto a console. Yes, I think you could. I, I, it's a good question. I don't know what the purpose of that is except to point out that you can do a whole lot of things with a PlayStation 5 or an Xbox Series X. You might not be able to do everything that you can do on the phone, but it's certainly more capable of doing things than just playing video games, obviously, since I watch Netflix and Hulu and whatnot on my various systems. So that's a fight that they are having about a distinction. But again, I don't see this as a long-term winner. Or as Robertson says here, we are way down a garden path of trying to explain why game consoles aren't equivalent to iPhones because of their controller configuration or size or various other somewhat random seeming distinctions Epic has come up with. Why is this entire line of argument even in this case? It's because the judge has expressed concern that her decision based on Epic's theory will affect an entire technology sector, if not more. So Epic is trying to assuage her fears. I don't think that that is actually a winning legal argument under what Epic is asking for in this case. Instead, some of the things that they actually did with their pushing through the Coalition for App Fairness in various states in the United States to actually make laws that prohibit things like contract terms that relate to app stores and in-app payment processing, they worked better than just bringing a Sherman Antitrust Act claim because they specifically defined out console manufacturers, console hardware. Now, those definitions weren't great, but they might have been able to be coaxed into some kind of better form. And the entire idea there was to create a new law that said you can't do these various things as restraints of trade or otherwise bad acts, but we don't intend to hit consoles with this concept. If you instead bring a court case under an existing somewhat ambiguous law, and the Sherman Antitrust Act is nothing if not ambiguous, then you bring with it all of these possibilities for another actor actually coming in and using a win on your theory against hardware manufacturers of all stripes, not limited to the video game industry. So there's a whole long discussion here, and I don't see it as an epic winner, but they kind of need to win it to assuage the judge's fears. With Apple taking 30% off the top, 
it makes it very hard for Epic and creators to exist in this future world. Epic's lawyer notes that buying V-Bucks through the website is inconvenient. Judge jumps in, asks if Fortnite's user base is mostly young. Isn't that a responsible way to deal with a young client base? Why should we want them to have the ability to just on impulse buy something? What you're really asking for is the ability to have impulse purchases. Now, I personally don't like this line of attack against Epic because it implies that Epic is responsible for the demographics of its user base. Sometimes when you make a product, the demographics are going to match up exactly with what you intended. And sometimes it's not going to match up at all. And so this kind of goes in a direction under the law, which I don't like, and I would certainly fight against if I were Epic, that says if somehow your demographics are X, Y, or Z, they're young kids, then it shouldn't be a problem for you to have higher friction than a different kind of software or a different kind of application or development. And that to me is not found in the law. That would really be kind of judicial legislation that I don't think is warranted. You can certainly come into my virtual legality comments and say, you think that's a protection that should be necessary. The right place for that to be made a protection that is necessary is through the legislature, through actual legislation and not litigation. The court is only capable of judging things on the claims that were presented to it under the laws as they exist today. So if I were Epic, I would fight against this pretty hard. All right, we are done with Tim Sweeney. As a wrap-up, Judge asks what happens if he loses. Apple would definitely have the right to remove their developer program for any reason or no reason. If Apple cut us off, we would have to live with not supporting the iOS platform, which I actually think is a pretty bad answer. There's no question that most technology companies right now have the right to remove things for any reason or no reason. If you go and you look at the Epic Game Store terms and conditions, generally speaking, Epic doesn't have an obligation to put your game up and has the rights to do certain things with respect to what it makes available through its technological infrastructure. That's pretty normal. So yes, Mr. Sweeney is correct. If they lose this case, Apple can cut them off from the developer program. Apple probably isn't going to be forced to keep them on the developer program one way or the other. That's what makes this a bad answer. What Epic is asking for is to not need Apple's permission, essentially, to put things on their store separately. If Apple cut us off, we would have to live with not supporting the iOS platform. That's kind of the normal way that business is done. If you go and you want to sell your book at the Barnes & Noble and Barnes & Noble says no, you can't sue them in federal court and say Barnes & Noble has to take my book and has to sell it. If they don't want to sell it, if they don't agree to your contract terms or even want your product there, if say you brought a previous federal lawsuit that cost them millions and millions of dollars and they just don't want to be associated with you, that's the normal course of business. Of course, Apple is still a business in and of itself. Fortnite's a very popular product. Even after a federal litigation, I think you can find that a lot of fences can be mended. If Epic were to lose this case, Apple's allowed to use its terms. You still owe Apple 30%. Nothing has really changed since before of the fall of last year. You might find Epic coming in the negotiating table and saying, we're sorry. We would really like to have access to that ecosystem. We'd like to give you that 200 some odd million dollars so that we can earn a lot more as our 70% cut. And we won't do this again. Sure. Apple might try to make an example of them. Apple might not. Very hard to say, but certainly it's not obvious that if they were to lose this case, they would simply lose access to Apple. That's not what a loss in this case means. It just means things proceed under the status quo. Only now you have to deal with the consequences of breaching an agreement with Apple and making their year a more difficult one. Then we have a couple of follow-on witnesses, which frankly, I didn't find to be that useful or interesting. We're going to go over these pretty quickly. Our next witness is Benjamin Simon, the CEO of Yoga Buddy, which makes a yoga app. YB submitted some exhibits where customers keep emailing because they discover it's got a cheaper price outside the app store, but it can't advertise that in-app. 
Another bit of this case, as we talked about when we talked about the story so far in Epic versus Apple, is this restriction that Apple puts in its developer guidelines that says you can't advertise a cheaper price for the app or for a service or for a subscription into the app on a different location. They can be there, but you can't use the application as it appears on our app store operating on our operating system to tell people about those lower prices. And I have in the past equated that to the game on the shelf at the Best Buy that you can't have materials that say, hey, you can buy this here or you can go to our website and buy it for 50% off because Best Buy wouldn't want to stock those particular games. Others have brought up competing arguments, but ultimately that's what's going to be the fight here is whether or not Apple is allowed to control in some respects what these developers say in their own applications when they are made available through the App Store and whether or not their restrictions are too significant. Of course, that's going to impact other pieces of technology as well, but that's why this particular witness is brought up in this litigation. Apple in addition to prohibiting us from implementing an additional payment method, does not allow us to direct users to a separate payment method or even add a link to our website. So roughly half the users simply pay substantially more to sign up through iOS. It's right there and they spend the money because we charge more through iOS to cover the iOS cut, that 30%, and we can charge a lesser fee going directly through our website. And yet, I'm not even sure if this plays against Apple. Half of your users are still buying the higher fee. Half of your users are still willing to pay for your services because they found them in the app store is not the kill shot I think Epic might hope it is. And in fact, this particular witness finishes with, Judge asks, similar to discussion with Sweeney, whether you can just go to Safari and pay for DownDog, going through the Safari, the web link on the iPhone. Unlike Sweeney, Simon says it's actually easy to do. iOS Safari saves credit card details and streamlines login. So you can go on the website, pay for the subscription, come back to the app, pay the lesser amount and use it that way directly on your iPhone. And you know, that's a pretty good argument. It does create that friction point. Tim Sweeney's trying to get out of that. That's one of the weaknesses in the Epic case, I think, primarily as it respects to the Android and the Google Play Store. One of those things that comes up in my comments a lot is, well, Google and Android is fine because they allow sideloading and all these various other things. But Epic is suing Google because they say the friction is too high, that there are warnings on the sideloading. There are warnings on the other app stores. There's warnings on the thing that Google allows you to do. And he doesn't want warnings. He doesn't want friction points. And at some level, this is extending pretty far. Right, the Coalition for App Fairness says the fee of 30% is ridiculous because Stripe asks for 5% or 3% or credit cards ask for 3.5% or whatever it might be. When the judge rightly says in the motion documents, well, Apple does a lot more than just payment process. This is access to an audience. This is doing this other stuff. Apple says security is very important, et cetera, et cetera. And you get to this point and you say, well, did Apple earn its cut? Similarly here, Friction is distinct from illegality. Okay, you have to go through the web service. Is that okay? Now, I would argue if I'm on Epic's side, I'd look at this and say, yeah, okay, you can go through the browser today, but your honor, if you don't do something about what Apple is doing and its restrictions, Apple could take that away tomorrow. Apple is only allowing kind of browser support for things like xCloud and other avenues because they want to look like good guys because they're currently under the federal spotlight. Apple has traditionally had very restrictive terms and done things that have been arbitrary and capricious against developers. And yes, the browser option exists right now, but it doesn't have to exist tomorrow. And that's one of the things we're fighting about. Now, I didn't see that summarized in this particular Twitter thread, but that's what I would say if I'm on the Epic side of this particular struggle. 
Testimonies wrapped for Simon. Epic is now calling its witness Ashish Patel, Director of Product Management at NVIDIA. And he says, we're getting into some Meteor stuff. Lawyer asking why NVIDIA doesn't offer a native app for iOS, just a web app. And NVIDIA says Apple rejected it. And this is one of those areas where I think Apple is actually pretty vulnerable. Apple rejected these cloud apps, xCloud, uh, the NVIDIA project, various things like this. I think there's this called GeForce Now because they said that in order to comply with the application guidelines, we would have to review every single game that you can access through that cloud service. Now, that's pretty silly on its face because the cloud service in and of itself is just playing what amounts to a video to you and is unlikely to have significant negative ramifications on the iOS ecosystem. And people rightly called them out, Microsoft included, and said, well, look, you don't ask for that from Netflix. And this is really about you protecting the sanctity of your Apple Arcade and your gaming revenue. Because if more people could play hundreds of games for what amounts to free, you have a much higher level of competition for actually selling your apps or even your free-to-play V-Bucks or what have you in your ecosystem with these other things made available. And I don't think Apple has a great argument against that, to be honest with you. But that's one of the reasons in virtual legality I said I think Microsoft is a potentially a better plaintiff. I think maybe even NVIDIA is a better plaintiff. These companies that are dealing with this particular issue are better plaintiffs than the company that surreptitiously put in a hotfix to change their direct payment and then claimed that all hell had broken loose. But that's, of course, just my opinion. Reasonable minds can differ. But I do think NVIDIA here brings up a better point than some of the other things that we have seen in this space. For Apple... It's a win if NVIDIA is providing an amazing service through the Safari browser outside the App Store. Obviously, has Apple done anything to stop NVIDIA from offering GeForce Now on Safari? Lawyer asks. Patel says no. And this line of questioning was all about Patel essentially having good reviews about GeForce Now thrust upon him, as this particular Twitter thread says, in the browser experience uh, on Safari and the iPhone and saying, well, look, if it works really well, then what are we even fighting about? And again, I think the right line of argument here is that Apple can change its terms at any time and we have to discuss what their rights are with respect to these terms at a hypothetical and rhetorical level before we can just say, yeah, they allow this right now and everything's okay, but we need to talk about whether they should be allowed to have these restrictions at all. And that's really what they talked about for the first couple of days. They actually hadn't concluded the session here at 6 p.m., on May 4th, if there's anything interesting that arises out of that after that time frame, I will probably pick it up in the next part of the Epic versus Apple litigation survey. Uh, but I do want to bring this video in under an hour. So I hope you found this informative and enjoyable. Certainly, we have been building to this particular portion of this series for a long, long time. And I'm going to do my best while still running a law firm, still putting out other content, still living my life to try to get this information out to you because I think it's important. I think it's interesting to a lot of you. And I think there could be significant changes in various ecosystems across video games and really across technology, depending on how this ultimately turns out. If you enjoy talking about the business and law of things like video games and big technology, Apple versus Epic, please consider supporting the channel on the Patreon, through Streamlabs, buying a shirt, buying a mug. We cannot do this without you. It takes a significant amount of time to make these videos and I love doing it, but every little bit of support helps. And that includes 
just subscribing, giving up votes. Are you a big fan of Epic? Do you think I'm too hard on them? Give me a down vote. Tell me why. Let's have that conversation. Let's engage on this platform and have good comments. Let's change YouTube. Let's change Google. And if none of that appeals to you, just tell your friends that we're having this conversation. And thanks again to all the journalists who are doing the heavy lifting and the hard work of getting those live tweets out, of explaining what's happening so that somebody like me can comment on them and hopefully add a little bit of information to the process. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoyed this video on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you watched it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.